Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. I'm joined today by Sarah. You might hear me call her Sarah the social worker, but she's Sarah, (laughs) the beautiful soul behind the Pesky Placenta Society. I'll let you speak to that a little bit later on, but do you want to introduce yourself, introduce your family? Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, so my family is small. I've got my husband and my son who is nearly nine months, which is insane to me. But up until... I went on maternity leave. I was, well, I am a social worker, but I was working in child protection and I was actually specializing in the prenatal role for a few years. So um, my understanding of perinatal mental health is pretty good professionally. Personally, um, it still hit me like a truck. Mm. Um, So that was a bit of an interesting war that my brain was kind of going through where I logically and academically understood the process of what was happening after trauma. But then obviously when your emotions are involved, everything, you know, goes out the window. But I am very grateful. I think my work experience meant that I had a lot of resources that I already knew about. So I didn't have to explore too much. Um, While you're in crisis. Yes, which is so hard. Like, and I Mm. really, truly... I think I can confidently say that if I didn't have access to that immediately when I needed it, I, yeah, I would have definitely spiralled even further than I did. Yes, so I have, well, I run, I suppose, I never know what word to use, um, the Pesky Placenta Society, which is a bit of an ode to my experience, but also it's just a bit funny. And obviously preeclampsia is one of many placental issues you can have so um I don't discriminate when it comes to pesky placentas <laughs> they're, they're either pesky or they're magical like I feel like there's no in between so I guess summary of my birth really is just you know I had I got preeclampsia I was diagnosed at 34 weeks but I had I was symptomatic well really from the beginning of pregnancy I had high blood pressure but I was in hospital for a week and then my son was born by emergency c-section at 35 weeks on the dot and I can go into I suppose the mental process around that a little bit later on um Mm. but I think an important aspect of my postnatal experience as well um in particular was around health anxiety and I know you've Mm. shared your struggles with that before and how when you end up with some horrible diagnosis it really exacerbates what's already there in a pretty big way because you've had health anxiety long before pregnancy yes yes and I I mean it was quite a long journey when I was 18 so I just finished school I did the gap year thing um, and I went over to the U.S. And did a summer camp and I was there for a few months and then spent a little while down south where I was born so we caught up with some people my mum came over but after I got home probably within a fortnight I started being quite unwell and I mean it was it's sort of subtle to begin with but 
enough that I was like, mm, I should probably get some blood tests. You know, I was quite lethargic and dizzy and that sort of thing. And to cut a very long story short, I ended up being diagnosed with Lyme disease, which is not, it's not unheard of in Australia, but it's certainly not common. It's a tick-borne illness that mm. our government and medical world doesn't like to recognise as present in Australia and even though like I was in the states I was in like the homeland of Lyme disease I still even with that couldn't get anyone to take me seriously so I had about 18 months of just being really really sick and not knowing what was wrong and to the point like my hair was falling out I looked like death walking around I felt like a zombie I couldn't do my own hair like I was so fatigued so when I finally got that diagnosis it was a bit surreal I think when you're worried about like am I crazy because I got to that point where I'd had the head immunologist of a hospital tell me that he'd seen many a young woman who just needed a little bit more attention and you know in the state I was in I just shut down I thought you know what I'm not going to fight it and my mum was beautifully advocating for me and sort of being like her hair's falling out she can't fake that but yeah I think I'd started to believe that I was making this mm. up for some reason because no one could find anything so eventually I found a doctor who specialized in Lyme disease and there's no treatments available in Australia other than like naturopathic realms we couldn't afford to go and live overseas and do the big treatment that you need so I still live with that but I think that experience meant that anytime you know I had a little twinge I feel something that's very real like a headache and then I just immediately assume, oh, this could be terrible. So I think then when you get pregnant, for me anyway, any mental health stuff is just exacerbated times 10 because yeah. your body is changing in such a big way. So I think I, I spent the pregnancy trying really hard not to panic. And I feel like everything can be explained away as a pregnancy thing like you'd be like oh this happened and someone goes oh yeah that's you know that happens when you get pregnant so it's difficult to differentiate between like what's just uncomfortable pregnancy stuff and what's like actually a health problem what I knew of preeclampsia was very minimal because I was trying really hard not to just like Google everything because that's yeah. my, you know, go-to. Google's really bad for people with health anxiety. Yes. <laughs> like, but I did quite well with my boundaries when I was pregnant. Like I I would actively stop people if they started telling me their horror stories because mm. there's a time and a place and some people aren't the right people to be telling. And, no. you know, so I would have to say like, look, I, you know, it's not that I don't want you to tell your story, but I just, I, I can't hear it right now because I'm going to take that and just run with it. Mm. Um, so I did quite well. And then when I started feeling sick, like properly sick, um, it just felt like exactly how I felt 10 years ago where I was going in to see the OB and going, look, I've got all these things happening that seem not normal. And I think preeclampsia in particular is tricky because the stuff that you can actually feel can be a pregnancy thing, like a headache, you know, persistent headache. I was told, oh, yeah, lots of pregnant women get headaches, take some Panadol. Um, or you're dehydrated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh, the amount of water I chugged to try <laughs> and get rid of my preeclampsia. <laughs> um, but the stuff that they actually measure, you can't feel. Like high blood pressure, only occasionally have I actually been able to go, oh, I think my blood pressure is high right now. Like often mm. it just is silent and so the stuff that I was getting, you know, like your right shoulder can start to hurt or they call it like upper quadrant pain, which is where your liver's expanding and it's kind of pressing on the things 
around you and causing referred pain but I I injured that same shoulder years ago and it felt identical mm. so I'd go in and I'd say look I know that shoulder pain is like a part of preeclampsia so I want to name it in case you, you need to hear that but also like I have this background so just every appointment I had was like oh yeah you know it could be this, sound- it could yeah be that. pretty yeah. much and I didn't have one of the diagnostic symptoms which is um extra protein in your urine which sort of Mm. indicates that your kidneys aren't doing so well so I didn't have that like the whole way through until right at the end but I had every other symptom and so I look back now and I just think like mate come on 11 out of 12 like surely someone could have gone hey this seems like maybe you're headed in a bad direction Mm. um but yeah that just didn't happen so eventually when I finally was diagnosed with that I was upset because you know, I knew that I had on paper, like all of these concerns and I kept getting told I was fine. So that really brought up my previous journey. So then I started convincing myself I was crazy and, you know, like getting bigger, it's uncomfortable. Like my yeah. feet started swelling up and, you know, that's normal too, which it, it, it is to it an is. extent. Um, but but mine, also- <laughs> mine was like, I if I pressed my thumb, it, oh, it still makes me like gag thinking about it. Of all the things I've been through, this is what grossed me out the most. It was like if I could leave a thumbprint like in my skin, like I had that much fluid retention, it was disgusting. Um, so note to anyone, that's actually not normal pregnancy swelling. If you can leave marks on yourself, please go and see a doctor. Um, yeah, so by the time I was diagnosed, it was that kind of relief and worry at the same time because I finally was like a bit vindicated I was like okay yes like somebody is taking me seriously I'm not okay but then I immediately you know you go into that like this is actually serious now I have to formally worry about it instead of hypothetically worry about it Um, but I think being in a hospital was so helpful like as much as hospitals kind of suck to be stuck in um it meant that even though I was still catastrophizing stuff like the staff were like right there and you know they're checking my blood pressure every hour or whatever so I was like okay even if it gets bad you know I'm in the right place um I had no I, even in my wildest dreams, could not have imagined it going as bad as it did. But Because <laughs> um, your final blood pressure reading, if I'm correct, was 230 over 30. Yes, which yeah. I'm still yet to find a medical professional who can explain that to me. They all just tell me that it's not possible, which sure, but it happened. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that was actually happening throughout the week I kept getting this um the the pulse pressure is what that sort of gap is called and when you have more than 60 in between your top and your bottom numbers they consider that abnormal Mm. you know I had 200 by the end and yeah no one no one can explain to me why that happened Mm. which also doesn't help my anxiety because it's this unanswered question and I think just understanding the mechanics of how things work can help you kind of ground yourself a little bit because even if it's bad you can understand it and I I mean I have lifelong blood pressure issues now so it's Mm -hmm. not like I can even say oh well you know I'm not pregnant anymore you know preeclampsia itself requires a placenta to be involved either currently Mm -hmm. or very recently so I'm well and truly out of the preeclampsia woods but I have no idea if my blood pressure has the capacity to do that again and that's still a goal of mine is to try and find someone who can explain it to me because even my good friend Mr Google couldn't help (laughs) so I think yeah having that big question mark for me even though it might not necessarily change anything it's just a jigsaw 
piece that's mm. not there and trauma really fragments everything and you have to try and put it back together so when there's a piece missing even if it's not necessarily relevant to you right now it's it takes you back to that space of not having control and I think that was the biggest thing for me because I had like like when you think about everything that has to happen for a c-section to occur so she checked my blood pressure around 7 30 in the evening and that's when it was bad and she was like oh okay we need to call well a met call which like is our equivalent of a code blue and they spent about 10 15 minutes just like testing everything and trying to figure it out and no one had any answers and there's some parts that are quite comical when I look back on it now obviously at the time it was terrifying but like they brought in literally every blood pressure machine on the ward because they thought it was broken like they thought that every blood pressure machine was somehow not working I also nearly kicked a doctor in the face that was quite funny (laughs) so when you have preeclampsia and it's heading towards eclampsia which is where you seize and have convulsions which did happen to me they call it um hyperreflexia which is like really exaggerated reflexes and they have their little hammer that they tap on your knee and I was lying on a bed like it's not like it was even swinging like I was lying on a bed and he tapped my knee and my foot went so high in the air that like he managed to move back in time but I genuinely nearly kicked him in the face and like looking back on that now that's funny straight out of a sitcom like it's got to be <laughs> but at the time I'm, I was just confused um yeah. but between that and like actually my son being born was maybe half an hour and that's not a lot like when you think about you have to get down to the OR they have to do all the prep they started the procedure before my anesthetic had set in so I was very full of fentanyl which is a pretty heavy duty Mm. opioid I mean in an average c-section babies are born quite quickly like they Mm. start and then you know not long later there they are and they hold them up over the curtain but usually they take a lot of time stitching you back up but I didn't have time because I was going straight to the ICU so I had maybe seven or eight minutes like you know and it was it was a rough job necessarily but um It was pretty, you know, it's a bit dehumanising, I think. Like you kind of just like roughly put back together. I didn't get cleaned and then I spent three days in the ICU not able to move. So by the time I had a shower, like I still had surgery on me. Like it was just, it it takes away a lot of your dignity, I think. And I'm assuming Bob wasn't in ICU with you. No, he was not. He was up in special care. And I think that's one of the things that I like still and I can feel myself getting emotional now, Mm. is like I can't, I cannot picture him being born. Like I know it happened, obviously, and I know what it looked like because there was a nurse who took a photo and so I'm very grateful for that. But like there was something very surreal about not even being able to picture what my Mm. baby looked like. And, you know, I spent, after all the rush and the panic, Um, I then spent, I don't even know how long because I was so out of it, but the ICU wasn't ready for me yet. So I had to go to the recovery ward, which was empty. And I was just lying there. It felt like hours. I don't think it was, but it was probably about an hour just like flicking between I don't know what he looks like. I can't picture him at all. And then I might not ever see him again because I was dying. Like I, Mm. you know, I'd been seizing until the anesthetic set in. I don't know if that's a thing. It seemed like everything settled a little bit once the spinal block took effect. But, you know, the staff around me were still panicking. I could hear them talking to each other. They were worried that I was going to die there on their watch. And so like 
I was sort of stuck in this limbo of apparently I just had a baby and I remember so distinctly and this is something that actually only came back to me quite recently like just feeling my belly and it was just so squishy and Mm. like nothing was there and I felt like I'd lost a baby and I know that I didn't and I don't for one second equate what I went through to losing a child because it's not but in that specific moment that's what it felt like I think because I didn't know if he was okay. Like I assumed he was because no one mentioned anything when he was born, but I didn't know if I was going to survive. Like it was just a really full on mental time and just on my own, like (laughs) on my own in my like delirious preeclampsia fentanyl brain, like not able to understand what was happening in and out of consciousness. Eventually I ended up in the ICU and that's its whole own experience. Um, And later on when my husband was able to come and see me, like he's, I didn't have my phone this whole time. So he gave me my phone and had some photos of, of my son and it just felt weird. Like I'm sitting there zooming in on this baby that apparently just came out of me. And this isn't how you meet your baby. Like this isn't how it's supposed to go. And I remember so distinctly, and this is something that I still, I don't know why this is where my mind went, but it's just the truth. As a caseworker, there were times where it was not safe for a baby to go home with their parents. And so that was my job to go and talk to that mum or parents let them know that their child was coming into care and taking that baby with me sometimes sometimes it didn't work that way and that's fine but as I was lying there in the ICU like I just kept thinking like I've made people feel this way and I stand by my decisions like I've never brought children into care without believing that's what needed to happen but I just couldn't wrap my head around I was sort of in that category now of I've just had a baby and I don't get to see them. And obviously it was very different reasons. Like it's not, it's not even a little bit the same, but I I think I just, it was the first time and I've had many since where the emotional side for the parent hit home for me. And I mean, empathy is a skill that I am pretty adept with. So it's not like I ever thought, oh, it's not a big deal. But I think when you feel it, Uh, It was just a whole different emotion. Like it was, yeah. And that's what was going through my head over and over again in the ICU. Like that was kind of where I was stuck mentally. And then the trouble with the ICU is it's very busy because everyone's Mm. dying. (laughs) And so the staff are understandably rushing to and fro. And I logically understood that me meeting my son was not anyone's priority but I wish that it had been someone's because I still look back on that and I think how different could my postnatal experience have been if I was able to see him sooner and maybe even stay closer and all day like because their shifts change you know I'd be told like yep we're gonna go soon I'd message my husband like yep we're coming up because obviously they're not going to bring like a little preemie baby into the ICU Um, and then the shift would change and the next person wouldn't know that that was the plan. And so I didn't actually meet him until the following night. It was almost exactly 24 hours after he was born. And it was weird. Like (laughs) it's weird meeting your baby in front of a room full of people that you don't know. And, you know, I was still hooked up to everything because they give you, if your preeclampsia is severe enough, or if you start seizing, they give you magnesium sulfate 
which is an anti-convulsant medication. Oh my gosh, it's disgusting. You feel like you're on fire and like in outer space at the same time. <laughs> so I still wasn't necessarily like mentally all there when I met my son. But yeah, it was just odd. Like it felt weird having somebody else unplugging him from things and like changing my cords around and watch me like sob hysterically. You know, I was trying to like pat his head. I must have just looked completely ragged and there was actually another mum and she started crying like and if your baby's in NICU or special care you've had some kind of trauma like whether it's the birth itself whether it's babies born and they're not well so I think I as much as it was in a room full of strangers I was in a room full of people that did understand what it was like to an extent yeah and then I went back to the ICU I think I had five minutes with him maybe and then the nurse, because she'd actually like done me a solid and taken me up there, even though she wasn't supposed to. So um, she had to get back. And yeah, I just stayed sort of in and out of consciousness for another day and night and then went back on the postnatal ward. And that was also weird because everyone else got to have their babies with them and I didn't. So he was still in special Yeah, Yeah, st- I was actually discharged before him and they were very lovely and they made sure I wasn't sharing a room or, or anything like that so I didn't have to, I guess, kind of be with someone who had their baby right next to them. But it was just I think I I didn't really have a second to process what had just happened. You know, I'd spent three days not walking so I was already behind where I should have been in terms of mobility and getting up was very difficult the surgery was quite rough so physically getting around was very painful and then he was on a different floor and unless I had someone to help me get up to where he was I just couldn't do it on my own so there were so many times where it just wasn't worth it and that to people who've never had like bonding issues with their baby that must just sound insane and I think I was in a pretty vulnerable state when I got pregnant so I didn't go into pregnancy like physically I wasn't in the best health mentally and emotionally I was definitely not um I was I was dead set convinced in my first trimester that I was just gonna have a miscarriage like I was prepared for that I'd had a couple already very early but when you're trying like it it sort of hits a little bit different even Mm. when it's very early, I think when you've been trying for a while. So I think just the fact that the pregnancy progressed at all was something I had to wrap my head around. So I I think I wasn't super connected from the Mm. beginning, um, which when I look at the full spectrum, I think I was preparing myself to lose him from day one. Mm. And then it sort of switched to, I thought I was going to die. And so then that was my reason for not wanting to get too close. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I I had quite a turbulent pregnancy experience just before anything went pear-shaped at the end. Pregnancy was stressful for me, like outside my body, but also the pregnancy itself was quite stressful. Everyone seemed so worried about my blood pressure, but still didn't like suspect preeclampsia until it was a bit too late. And if I can just ask yeah. about mental mm. health in pregnancy, obviously it wasn't great. No. Did anybody pick up on that? Um, I think obviously like I had my people who did care and they cared, you know, before and after I was pregnant. But I think when you're pregnant, a lot of people think about the baby as we should. But I think I felt a bit like a host my baby for a while and then you know the more unwell I got but it is hard I think mental health in pregnancy because your hormones get blamed for everything too so you know it's like oh I'm just crying and like look when you're crying 
about like not having honey chicken at 11.30 on a Friday night. We're going to blame the hormones. But I think those ongoing issues, I mean, I, looking back, I, I'm still annoyed that I let myself get bullied into this, but I went off my antidepressants when I got pregnant because I think my GP was quite heavy on the risk side of things. And I get that from their point of view, but I think looking back, like I wish I had stayed on it throughout my pregnancy because it was safe. I think when it's your first pregnancy and when you have my kind of health history, it's very difficult in the moment to just kind of take a step back and go, do I need to like advocate for myself here or do I need to just do what I'm told? Because you've constantly got this little anxious voice kind of telling you like, oh, you know, you don't actually know what you're talking about. Um, but I do because it's my body and it's my feelings. So I think I, I spent a very vulnerable pregnancy with, you know, diagnosed depression and anxiety, but not medicated. And then you add the hormones, which mm-hmm. do impact your mental health. Like it's not that they're t- totally separate, but I think often when you're pregnant, they just become the front runner and everything is like, you're just hormonal. And same thing when you've had the baby, like the baby blues. Yes, it's very hormonal and it's very real. Um, but it sort of gets minimised because it's hormone. Mm. Especially if we have a history with mental ill health, hormones, the impact that they have. (laughs) I know I was minimising my experience. Oh, it's just hormones. But those hormones were wreaking havoc on a body and a mind that were vulnerable to hormones. And it doesn't actually matter why. Like Mm. the reason at this point, it doesn't matter. Like if you're crying because of hormones or if you're crying because of you know, your mental health. Like I was convinced that my world was ending every day for a few weeks after my son was born. Mm. Every afternoon I would have a panic attack. I would not be able to, like just the thought of nighttime was terrifying. Like I was, it was debilitating. Like every single day my husband would have to sit with me and remind me like it's done. Like obviously not all of it was over because I still had health problems, but, you know, like we're home, we're safe. Like we had to do that chat every single day. And even though on paper, medically, my birth was traumatic, like nobody can argue with that. It just mm. was um, not not every birth is so easily definable as traumatic in, mm. a, in a medical sense. But like even with all of that, I had people like, oh, you know, this will get better. Like it's just baby blues. Like, yes, the hormones are definitely exacerbating this. Like I noticed a shift after about a fortnight. Mm. Once your hormones start to settle, it got a little bit easier, but it didn't go away. And And even if you have the birth of your dreams, you've got this tiny human that you've got to keep alive and like you're trying to heal and rest and like all of it is overwhelming and exhausting. So regardless of what's making you feel that way, it's mm. still happening and it's still overwhelming. And I'm very mindful that a lot of the advice people give is well meant. Like I don't doubt the intention. Mm. However, the advice I kept getting was like, just focus on the baby. You know, you've got your beautiful little boy. And I was still sitting in a space of going, I don't like him. And that still feels really weird to say out loud, but it's true. I'm very committed to being as honest about it as I can, because I know that if I felt it, somebody else has or is. And, you know, not feeling like a monster is really important. But I just, I you know, so constantly is being told, just enjoy the cuddles. You know, I have this like chaotic cyclone of a little boy right now who does not like cuddles so I do miss being able to cuddle him but at the time I didn't want to like I didn't know who he was I didn't know who I was I spent every day just like waiting for death to find me 
And so I didn't want to cause him any more issue by loving him and then going away. Because I think I, you know, I had that. And it wasn't just 24 hours that we were separated. Like that's how long it was until I met him. But mentally, like we were separated for a very long time. And when you're in that space of, I don't know who I am after this. Like, I don't even know what happened. You know, how am I supposed to then be a parent to this baby that everyone's telling me that I'm so in love with, but I'm not feeling that. Like, that's just so many things to be trying to process in a postpartum brain. Like, Mm. trauma aside, um, there's a lot to try and figure out in terms of who you are um, when you become a mum. And I think when you add trauma on top of that, like, it's just the crappiest Sunday you've ever seen, like, Mm. with this trauma cherry sitting right on the top. And I didn't, like, I just didn't want to spend time with him. Like, if my mum was here you know, she'd be like, oh, you know, I'd desperately wait for her to be like, oh, you know, can I give him a bottle? And I'd be like, yes, please, like, do it. And it's not that I, like, if I was on my own, all his needs were met. Like, I mm. I changed his nappies, I made sure he was warm, I made sure he was fed, I put him to sleep. Like, and I think that's where we have this gap, I think, in our understanding of postpartum mental health, where it's defined by whether your baby's cared for or not. And mm. like he was, <laughs> he wanted for nothing, um, but I wasn't okay. Like that, that was not a way to really judge where I was sitting because I was masking a lot of that and just pretending to be head over heels for this baby that I still didn't feel like I knew. And I felt like he didn't know who I was. And I think because my husband, we, we joke and say like my son's like a little duckling who like imprinted on my husband first. And that sort of bond that, you know, you see with mums and their babies when things go well, he had that with his dad. And now I love that. Like that's really helpful because it means I get me time. But at the time, like I was so offended by that. Like I was so upset by that. And I remember just being really resentful to this tiny little baby, which, you know, I know is not logical, but again, emotion and trauma isn't logical. So I was just like, well, after everything that I went through to make sure that we're both here, you don't even like me. So Mm. it's making it hard for me to like you. Mm. And then I had all these appointments. Like I had an appointment a day for two weeks after he was born because when preeclampsia gets quite bad, as it did with me, it just takes down every part of your body. So you have to go and get checked. So I couldn't actually spend time focusing on those lovely newborn warm fuzzy cuddles that you're supposed to have because you know I'd have to go to an appointment and then I'd have to be reliving everything and then I'd come home in a state of just exhaustion and worry and and at no point like my therapist asked me outright once which I appreciated if I blamed my son for what happened which I don't I blame my placenta so I've never blamed him for what happened but I definitely blamed him that I couldn't focus on myself mm. after he was born like I I think I resented the responsibility of this little baby who relentlessly needed me while you're barely alive yeah yeah I'm just trying to survive each day and at that point I was still trying to breastfeed as well my milk never actually fully came in which I didn't know at the time <laughs> 
but um you know that in and of itself when breastfeeding is not working and you really want it to work like that's mm. its own emotional hormonal journey um yeah. so there was just I was trying to do so much at once and then I was also just trying to be fine like I didn't want anyone not necessarily to think I wasn't okay I think I was trying to convince myself that I was okay and so you know I'd say things like oh yeah it was a bit touch and go but like we're both here and we're both fine and you know when I started to actually properly feel what had happened I was like I can't keep saying that and I think because I I had I still don't remember many large chunks of it so you know I started writing it out as best I could just to piece together what had happened but I kind of had a few weeks where I just thought of it as oh yeah that sucked like that wasn't what I wanted but like we're okay and so then when it hit me that actually I should be dead that that's a lot to try and process and when you're trying to process that and also be like a full-time parent, one thing's got to take priority and it's always going to be the baby. So mm. I think I did have this kind of, in my head, my son was connected and one and the same with me not being able to heal mm. um, as, as irrational as that might have been. But yeah, it meant that I had this really important priority that society and everyone expects you to put first. But I think I... I really I hated that. I felt like because of this new role of being a mother, I didn't have time to actually just take a beat and go, oh my gosh, what just happened? Mm. So yeah, there was just so many things happening. And then I still had all the health anxiety, like for weeks after. But the one that really got me and still happens is I still have, to an extent, the exaggerated reflexes. So I still like have random little like jerks. <laughs> but those were really exaggerated in those first couple of weeks. And because I'd had convulsions and the seizing, whenever that happened, I would instantly panic mm. that I was having a seizure. And so then when you panic, you know, you can feel your heartbeat in your throat and like, you know, all these things start happening, you know, that would then exacerbate. And I just end up in this like cycle of little but not little it's very noticeable kind of twitch. And then I bet, oh my gosh, it's happening. And because preeclampsia, you can actually develop up to six weeks postpartum. So you don't have to have had any symptoms prior to the birth. So I was still in that danger zone. Um, and I remember my original psychologist that I was already seeing, the first thing I did when I woke up in postnatal was I emailed her. I know that I just had this traumatic birth and I don't feel it yet, but I need to organize this now because when I do, when it hits me, I'm not going to think of you. So I remember her saying to me, like, there's no way you can start processing any of this when you're still no. like you're not in the clear yet mm. and so I told myself that it's actually quite rational for me to be terrified right now because I don't have any guarantee that it won't come back and that like in and of itself is exhausting enough without all the parenting <laughs> like mm. just sort of trying to figure out am I still going to die and there was just so much happening all at once and trying to make sense of that was very hard and I think that's where my writing really helped mm. me because not only did it help me process but it just helped me put together like this happened and this happened kind of helped me stay sane a little bit and then finding you know the online community around birth and perinatal trauma was like 100% my salvation like I mm. as sad as it is that so many people can understand what it feels like to have perinatal trauma I think I needed that like no one in my own life 
could say to me, I know how you feel. And Mm. still, like, I don't know anyone who had a birth experience like mine in my personal life. So finding people who get it, even if they're on the other side of the world, has been really helpful for healing. And I think it showed me you can be okay. Like, you're not yet, but you can be because these people are. (laughs) And I think it's so hard because trauma, you can't, like, black and white it. It's not, you know, Mm. you can't neatly fit it in a box. It's how we experience something. But I think I've learned so much from the various lovely Instagram ladies such as yourself um, who I think just have so much insight into what I've been through but from a lens that I might not approach something. So Mm. I think there have just been so many times where I'll read something like, oh, yeah, that really hits home and I wouldn't have got there on my own. So I'm so grateful to have found the space that I did and to be a part of that too I think has been helpful and it's helped me I think just figure out who I want to be as a mom and as a woman and as somebody who I suppose can now help people who have or will have preeclampsia yeah so it's led me to wonderful things I definitely wouldn't I'm not that like oh I wouldn't change a thing like I would change everything (laughs) (laughs) yeah I um yeah I would 100% want a lovely birth um but I I'm glad for the places that it's led me now um and with my son too you know I I got to have those feelings that were missing and I remember the first time I like envisioned somebody like harming him and I was like I would rip their head off and then I remember going and my husband was like, what? And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I would rip someone's head off for him. And he was like, that's not a good thing. I was like, but it is. Like, <laughs> I was like, it is, it is, because I spent so long just being like, how do women supposedly lift cars off their children? Like, I don't understand this feeling that I'm supposed to have. So I think then when I first had that real, like, defensive, like, mama bear thing, and it wasn't like a real threat. I was just, like, picturing what I would do. But that was like a weird trauma milestone for me so you know I got there in the end I think healing is is slow slower than we probably want it to be but um that meant that I could be like whole enough to have some left for him and Mm. and I value that while I wish things were different I think I appreciate those feelings potentially more than I would have um because I'd never thought I would have them and to be able to just like want to smush his little face or sniff his head like that was stuff that I didn't do for a really long time. And you mentioned you did something which touched me because I did something a little bit similar. Um, part of your healing was writing letters to your son. Yes. And I just want to know when that started or how that's felt, I guess. I Writing has all, like in my adult life has always been a thing. And it was actually when I had Lyme disease. That was the first time that I wow. actually dedicated some time to just trying to verbalize what I had been through so that not only I could process it but people could understand how I feel and there's so much that you can say in writing that you can't say with words out of your mouth and when um, life changed a little bit and yeah stuff got really hard I, I wrote that as a letter not not for them to read but I think it just helped me be as honest as I could be like Mm. if I'm writing it with another person as the focus I tend to be a bit more authentic and vulnerable Mm. I think in sharing what I'm what I'm thinking and I just found it to be so much more healing so when I first started writing things out after my son was born I didn't 
it was just dot points. Like I was just at Mm. first trying to make sense of what had happened and try to remember as much as I could. And then after a few weeks, when I started turning that into a bit of a narrative, it just felt, yeah, it just felt more natural, I think, to write it to him, you know, and one day we'll go through it. (laughs) Um, But I didn't necessarily write it to him with the intention him. yeah of him to read it mm. but I think it just it made it a lot more like I think I was able to connect with him through my writing more than mm. I could in real life and so I knew that if I could try and write it to him I still had hope that yeah. maybe one day I could feel what I was writing um yeah so I think for me that's how that's how I got it out in the most real way that I could what you said about hope, I this is the point where I started to cry. It was going to happen <laughs> at some point and when you're writing it down, there is a hope, there is a future. And yes. by writing it down, it's it seems like it's official and in the past as well, like all the bad stuff. Yeah. And I don't think we can underestimate that. Like it is so powerful. Yeah. Even like just as a social worker, I used to tell people all the time, I was like, I, even if you're not a writer, like it doesn't have to be written well. But there's something about with a pen, like there's something quite therapeutic about just writing it out and seeing it on a page because it means you can kind of leave it out of your head for a little while. Mm. But you also know that it was in there to start with. And so I think, yeah, it's powerful all around when we can be vulnerable in writing. It just has so much um, potential to change someone else. Like, and that's why I started the Instagram space that I did because I was like if there's just one person that I can be that for like it's worth it because Mm. I am so grateful to the people who have gone before me and been really vulnerable in sharing their stories because without them like even with all the wonderful like specific perinatal therapy that I had like it's not the same as being able to see somebody a few years ahead of you go like, Mm. I've been where you are and look where I am now. Like you can do it because I did it and I didn't think I could do it. And like, it's obviously healing for me, but I want it to be that for other people also. And yeah, we just can't ever underestimate our words and the impact Mm. that they have because you just, especially online, like you don't know who you're reaching. And Mm. I know for me, like, I don't know where I'd be if I didn't have those people. But yeah, I think writing is definitely, it's a channel for a lot of emotion that you can't make sense of or verbalise. On that note of the wonderful perinatal therapies that you had, would you like to comment on that? When that actually kicked in, who you saw, what was helpful? Yes. So I was very lucky and blessed in the way that all this panned out and I'm very mindful that my access to resources is not the average person so Mm. I don't I guess I don't want this to seem like I just assume everyone should be able to do the same thing but Mm. I think because of my social work background and like trauma being such an intimate friend of mine on a Mm. professional level it did give me a bit of a heads up of like okay at some stage soon (laughs) this is all going to hit you and then there's no planning. Like nothing's going to be able to happen once you're feeling the weight Mm. of everything. So I used those few days to try and put some stuff in place knowing what was coming. Like I knew that it was inevitable that I would end up requiring 
pretty intensive support. So I managed to see just my regular psychologist the week after I got out of hospital. And she was great, like, because she'd been helping me through so much anyway. But because of my connections in child protection, I worked with a lot of people in health as well. So there was a few lovely midwives who knew of this therapist and they were like, we've called her, she's ready, like she's got a spot, you know, you just got to go to your GP and do this referral. And so everything was kind of handed to me on a silver platter. And she has a midwifery background, but she specializes in birth trauma and perinatal trauma. So I just felt really at home with her. Like I think the combination of mental health and physical health knowledge was really helpful for me because I, I didn't have to like over explain because I think when you have something like preeclampsia you sort of feel like you then are educating other doctors about it and it's like oh this is exhausting you should just know this so I think it was refreshing to be able to talk to someone who just like knew what I was talking about mm-hmm. um, and she just let me get it all out and I think as a good relationship with a therapist does like she was able to just pinpoint a few things and go like I, it seems like this is where you're a bit stuck and she brought up doing EMDR like Mm. straight away and I knew a lot about it because of my work background but as many social workers are we're great at telling people what to do with their feelings we're not the best at dealing with our own and so I was really skeptical like I was trying to explain to my husband what it was and when you try and explain EMDR it sounds like there's maybe some crystals involved but there's not and so then I'm like googling it trying to find like a sciencey explanation (laughs) of like how it works I'm like I don't know how it works it just works and your eyes move back and forth um I describe it as it takes the sting out of it like I can remember what happened but it's not like I'm stuck there anymore Mm. so I was very lucky like I started doing AMDR a fortnight after he was born and that's not common Mm. um and so I I credit a lot of because I think when I look at other people's stories what I was really struck by was I felt like I got to a better space quicker Mm. um and I think most of that is just because I had the right people there at the right time to get things moving really quickly. And Mm. I knew that I needed to do that. You know, there's like the calm before the storm with trauma Mm. where you just kind of floating along. And I knew that I needed to make the most of that time. And so I'm glad that I did. And I think I also had people that I knew were looking after my son. Like I am very lucky in the support system that I had. So Mm. I know that I'm in a position of privilege when it comes to the support that I had. I'm very mindful of that, but I'm also very grateful for it. And I think it's important that we talk about it because that's what it should be. Yeah, it shouldn't be. And that's what I remember saying to my friend when I first found out, because this is through the... um, Oh, I can never remember the acronym, MH Nips, and that made me laugh, um, which just shows how childish I am. It's something incentive program. It's a basically a subsidized mental health access mm. type of thing. Uh, mental health nurse incentive it. program. That's it. And I was like, why Why is this not every, why do we not just have this for everyone? Like, this is insane. I don't have to pay, I think I can see her for two years. Yeah, it's amazing. And I wish more people had access to it. But, Mm. you know, I, yeah, very quickly was doing EMDR and it worked really fast for me. Like I was Mm. quite shocked at how quickly I was able to reflect on stuff without feeling like I was immediately just back in that situation. Um, Mm. Yeah. So I, until very recently, I was doing weekly appointments. Mm. Um, And so that's quite like, that's quite intensive Mm. when you have a little baby as well. 
Um, mm. But again, I'm I'm just very grateful, you know, that I was able to prioritize that because I don't think I would be as okay as I am now so mm. quickly without, you know, having the space to just like go and do what I need to do. Um, and I think working with her has it's shed some light on a lot of things that I've been holding on to for a really long time that have nothing to do with birth, but mm. have definitely come out in that experience as they do in motherhood absolutely like all of our most vulnerable little cracks like mm. just get blown wide open when you have a baby you know there were wounds that needed healing that mm. i'd been ignoring for a really long time i also went back on medication yes and when roughly did that start um it was within the fortnight of his birth i think again that was a Maybe silver lining is not the right word, but because of what had happened physically with preeclampsia, mm. I had to go to the doctor within mm. a week. And so that meant that he was doing checks much quicker, what usually would happen at six weeks. Mm. And I think I also, again, because I was still in that space of like there's a storm coming and I've got a list to get done before it hits me. Mm. And so I remember sitting down with him and I was like, I need this, this and this. I was like, if you do your ADS scale now, like I'm telling you this is the number I'm going to have, like, you know, I could sort of Mm. predict where I was going to go. And so I went back on the medication I have ended up switching like to a different one a couple of months ago because it just didn't seem to make much of a difference. Um, Mm. And I actually realized it because I was getting so triggered by my son's crying, like to the point where I'd have to like put him down and just like go into another room because I couldn't handle it. And I was like, I feel like Lexapro is not really helping me. And the Zoloft made a big difference. So it was really nice being able to feel a difference like Mm. on the Zoloft. and, And that's something that, I mean, I'll just stay on it for as long as I need to. Um, Mm. I used to be quite weird about it like you know social worker who's constantly trying to help people with their mental health and then I need medication it's the end of the world Mm. Um, but I take so many pills every day now that it's like not a big deal (laughs) and I think it was a good like I think I needed the therapy as well but it Mm. helped me be in a space to be able to talk about it like I think for for me, it's a bit of a stepping stone. And I keep like having these moments where I'm like, oh, maybe I could wean myself off it. I'm like, why? Like, <laughs> Why? It's working mm-hmm. and I feel good. Let's just enjoy that. <laughs> it's a tool in a toolbox, yes. you know, and that was something I had to wrap my head around because I didn't want to accept that at first. I thought I wanted to be stronger than that, than medication, but just having that take us down a couple levels so that other treatments can work. And like, it's funny how we do that because like, imagine if I spoke about my blood pressure medication that way, like it just would be absolutely ridiculous. But for something that's in our mind, we just automatically kind of make it a strength thing. Like Mm. I have to be better than this. And it's like, Mm. no, like if you have any kind of injury or illness and the medication is going to help you take the pill, it's fine. But Mm. when, and you know, I know that I would give that advice to anyone, but when it comes to ourselves, you know, we have to be stronger. Like we're not supposed to be vulnerable, Mm. Um, particularly when you're in a job where you're the person that has to fix things. It is a little bit of a tricky thing to wrap your head around when you're like the helper and then you need to have help for yourself. But I think it's good. Like it's humbled me, I think, in that way, in a necessary way, (laughs) Um, having to rely on the skills and other people and uh, drugs. Um, So you've had your talk therapy, medication, EMDR. 
And there is one more thing, which was IFS. Yes. So IFS is internal family systems. You know, when people say, oh, I did CBT or I did ACT. IFS is like that, but different to those. Yeah, it's like a framework maybe. I'm wondering if it's like schema therapy because that's yes. what I've done. And it is, it's again, one of those things that like when I was trying to explain it to my husband, I was like, it's not as weird as it sounds. No. Like, it's like, it makes sense when a professional is explaining it. Because basically it's sort of around like isolating parts of your self that are either like protecting you and and we've had a little break with it because we've gone back to doing some like EMDR stuff Mm. but like I that's where like all my childhood stuff came out and there's all these things where I'm just like oh my gosh like I make so much more sense now that I know this and and it's heavy it is it is not a heavy band-aid and this is why I will always stress you it's not like you can just come out of a traumatic experience and go straight into something like that. We need to come down a few levels. I would have, because I have the professional skills, Mm. I can talk my way around mental health if I need to. (laughs) So I know I've had times in the past where I'd sit there and be like, I know exactly what you want to hear to believe that I'm okay. And I was doing that in the beginning, like with the birth trauma stuff. And she was like, cut it out, like just stop it. So I think she called me on the bullshit very quickly. And I think if I would tried to do this kind of work then, I just would have been like, no, I'm fine. Like everything was great. Whereas having had, I mean, I think the first time we looked at, because it's a set of cards that you kind of go through that have different images and stuff on them. And the idea is you kind of just pull out the ones that make you feel something and you don't necessarily have to know what that is. Like Mm. it's just if it's kind of triggered a, a feeling in you, set it aside and all of mm. those cards have different meanings to them and this is where I'm like it's not tarot reading <laughs> like it's not it's like psychologically like a helpful thing it's not magical and it's not yeah. like witchcraft it just sounds like it um and I've actually been looking forward to getting back into it because it is that kind of deep work that mm. I've not done before it's often been that real surface level venting really like And sometimes you need that and that's okay. But I think what I was doing before, I was only seeing my psychologist once a month because that's when I could see her. And so every time it would just be like catching her up on what had happened and we never actually got to a point of like digging deep. And so I Mm. think having the opportunity to do that now, it's very raw and it's exhausting, but it's so necessary. And I think particularly, and I think think it was you posted not long ago around like when do you know you're on edge? Like how do you Mm. know? And for me it's like the daydreaming, like dissociation stuff, you know, kind of opening up these fantasy worlds I would created in my head as a kid to distract me from stuff. Like I never thought I'd be sitting there talking about that after having Mm. a baby. Like that Mm. completely hit me out of nowhere. But I'm glad that I am because, I mean, I need to work through it. But doing it in a structured way with IFS is really helpful too because it's not like you're not sort of just pulling at threads. Like there's a purpose to it and things get kind of pulled apart in a very structured way so you're not just left like floundering in all of these thoughts. Because, again, it is heavy. Absolutely. So you get yourself a good therapist and it's it's magic what they can do, but that they can hold you through that space. Yes. And I used to, like when I was trying to convince people to go to counselling, mm. I'd say like it's a bit like if you start working out your body, like it hurts the next day, like you're exhausted mm. and you don't want to do it again, but you know that next time you do it, it'll still hurt, but it hurts a little bit less. And yeah. 
that's how therapy felt for me. Like oh, after I love that analogy. Yeah, it's a good one. I stole that. I can't remember <laughs> from who, but it was one of my colleagues. I was like, add that to my list <laughs> of analogies. But it is perfect. Like, you know, I did aqua aerobics for ages before I got pregnant. And if I had a break from that and went back, the pain I was in, and then I'd be like, no, but I know that I need to keep doing it. And then you get to a point where you look forward to going and you, yeah. you know, feel good during and afterwards. And I think that's where I'm at now with therapy, which is very much credit to my wonderful therapist, but also to myself. Like, yeah. you know, you've got to bring something to the session and yeah, and it's hard. <laughs> like, it's hard, especially as a parent, like with the, with well, any age kid, really, I think it's mm. hard to try and put yourself first. But yeah, I think when you do... You can only be a better parent for it, I think is what I'm learning. And on that note, where are you at now? I think I'm actually getting to the point where I need to like chill out a bit because <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have a really boring 2023 and then I've taken a lot on, uh, mm. which is just my nature, but I'm trying to be better at it. But I think doing like the PPS stuff has been so meaningful for me and just like I, I enjoy making graphics and like it can be as simple as just enjoying that side of things mm. like creativity in a easier way than like sitting down and painting <laughs> um so that's been a good morale boost I guess for yeah. me um and just getting to meet other people you know like you and, and others through that space has been so lovely but other than that I've been yeah, helping the um, the lovely midwives that helped me. And that's been nice to have purpose. I think I was one of those people that was like convinced I was going to love being a stay-at-home mom and, you know, I could never have enough of my baby and well, I was very wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, I think for me to feel whole, I need to have a sense of purpose that's mm. separate from being a mom. And obviously a lot of my content is around parenting, but I think it's something that I can separate. Yeah, so that's been great. Yeah, and just trying to <laughs> try and sort out my blood pressure. Uh, it's still not great. And I think that's like preeclampsia really validated my health anxiety in a very unhelpful way because I'm now left with a lifelong problem mm. um, that puts me at high risk of just about everything. And so like um, knowing the possibilities of what could happen in the future plays on my mind a fair bit. Yeah, so that's still like, I can't say that that's behind me because it's not. And I think it will always be a bit of a struggle. So there's just lots of health stuff that I have to consider all the mm. time. But okay, I think I feel pretty good and I feel a lot of hope for good things, particularly like in my relationship with my son. We got there in the end and um, I'm just enjoying liking him. <laughs> I was going to ask how it was, but you just answered my question. He's like the quirkiest um, man. I did not know eight-month-olds could have so much personality. Like, yes. I, I often have little moments where I just kind of reflect on how close we came to not having what we have now, even on the hard days. I'm always very grateful to be a mum and to be here. And, yeah, I hope I, I can hold on to that feeling. And like I said before... I'll rip heads off for him now, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story with me. I'm grateful that you showed up in this space. I I want to pass on what other people have done for me in that space. So I think the more we can do that, the better the better off we all are, really. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. 
If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.